It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week we'll be discussing the dramatic sacking of Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson, the first cabinet minister to be booted out for leaking in living memory. Plus, James Blitz will be discussing the local election results and what it tells us about the state of the political nation. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, Defence and Security Editor David Bond, columnist Robert Trimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and political correspondent Laura Hughes. And we apologise in advance for a slightly crackly podcast this week. The FT is in its final few weeks at our home on Southwark Bridge, soon to move to our shiny new building, Bracken House. So if you can bear with us with the order quality, we'll be back to normal soon. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then subscribe or leave us a positive review and we'll be very grateful. On Wednesday evening, an email dropped into the inbox of Westminster's journalists. It was a curt letter from Theresa May to Gavin Williamson announcing that he had been summarily sacked from the Cabinet following an inquiry into the unprecedented leak from the National Security Council. The Prime Minister had lost trust and faith in the Defence Secretary, but he has refused to go quietly. Mr Williamson has sworn on the lives of his children that he was not responsible for the leak about Huawei's involvement in the UK's 5G network, but will we ever find out whether he was responsible? So David Bond, we were sitting here last week talking about this leak inquiry and whether and who might be responsible, and we never thought that we would get to the bottom of it because these leak inquiries happen all the time in Whitehall and there's normally too many people with access to the privileged information to point a finger decisively to say this person was to blame. But clearly in this situation, Theresa May has come to the conclusion there is no other viable explanation. It had to be Mr. Williamson. And even if he denies it, she lost faith in him. And that was it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, while lots of people at the time of the leak were pointing the finger at Gavin Williamson, in a sense, he wasn't uh, surprised to emerge as uh, the potential culprit here, although, of course, he does deny it. I think it tells you just how seriously it was being treated inside number 10 and by the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Mark Sedwell. And I think there's a reason why it was being treated so seriously, and that is because it was a leak from the National Security Council. You know, we've got used to leaks out of Cabinet many times over the years, but this felt like a different level of seriousness around that. So Sir Mark said we really wanted to make sure that he investigated it thoroughly and that someone paid a price. So Robert Shrimsley, we know that Theresa May met with Mr Williamson at 5pm yesterday and she put forward this evidence to him and the key bit that um, has pointed the finger towards Mr Williamson is this 11 minute phone call between him 
and the journalist on the Daily Telegraph who wrote the story. And Mr Williamson has said that phone call was about other matters. We can speculate what they might be. But really, nobody knows apart from him and the journalist. And he is completely denied that was what was discussed on that phone call. And after half an hour of backwards and forwards with the PM, essentially, she said that he hadn't engaged with the inquiry. There was no other explanation. So it must have been him and he must go. And he refused to resign, which is quite rare. Most ministers will hand in a notice saying, you've got no confidence in me. I'm going to go. He even refused to do that. Yeah, I think there are a few things to say about this. A former colleague of mine in the lobby, Gabby Hinsliff, put out a really interesting Twitter thread pointing out that actually very, very few leaks come just from somebody phoning up a journalist and going, Oi, mate, have I got a story for you? It really doesn't tend to work that way. Mostly it is people pursuing a line. They've heard a whisper of something. They chase it up. They phone a number of people. And sometimes the people who, this has happened to me as well, sometimes the people who actually have given you the story don't realise they've given it to you. They think they were simply confirming something you already knew. So the truth is, we don't really know. And unless the security service has been monitoring the phone calls, we will probably never find out for sure who is telling the truth on this matter. But the point that I think some people have lost in this case is that the Prime Minister does not need to make her decision on the basis of beyond reasonable doubt or the balance of probability or any of the other criteria that the Criminal Prosecution Service use when deciding whether to pursue someone. She can just say, you know what, I think you're a wrong un. I'm not convinced and I don't want you in my cabinet anymore. And that's fundamentally what's happened here. And I think, Miranda Green, this comes to the key point, which is that it was a political decision, not a legal one by Theresa May, because the general guidance from Number 10 on this has been that it was to do with that lack of trust in the Defence Secretary because that room, as we've discussed, many confidential things are talked about and she has to know that everyone in that room is not going to go out and leak it. This particular bit of information wasn't national security. It was a political decision to allow some involvement of Huawei and it was really a PR embarrassment for the government and really it's up to the Prime Minister. If she doesn't like or want someone in her cabinet, then that's her call. But this crucial thing is it doesn't look like there's going to be a criminal investigation. You can see why Gavin Williamson personally is obsessed with the idea of what he did or didn't say on a phone call to a journalist because he wants to, as it were, clear his name. But in fact, as Robert said, that isn't the interesting thing about these developments. The idea that political appointments or dismissals should be held to a criminal standard of proof as if in a court of law is absurd. If a prime minister can't have full trust in their cabinet then they should be able to dismiss them and terminate that professional relationship. Think of all of the great stories in the past of cabinet ministers being fired and being asked the reason why in being told you're not up to it. You know, it is at the dispensation of the Prime Minister of the day. I think what's much more interesting is how this mini reshuffle that it's turned into might change the political dynamics and also, frankly, that it's an example of May herself exerting authority at a time when the assumption is that she has no authority left and how will that change inside the cabinet now for example that she has Rory Stewart who's been moved in to replace Penny Mordaunt at Diffid Rory Stewart has been more enthusiastic about Mrs May's Brexit deal than Mrs May herself over the last few months so that's a help to her again so Are we seeing some tiny little bit of the tide turning for May? I think the thing that surprised people the most, Robert, was the decisiveness to which the sacking came because we've become used to this government of everything being fragile and falling apart and 
the Leakington cabinet has been absolutely extraordinary that every single week you essentially can get a transcript of what was said in what is meant to be a confidential decision-making body of well, the I was, government. I, was, I think this is a fundamental point. I mean, Theresa May is almost powerless. It's one of the very few things she can do without anybody else's say. So it was easy to be decisive on this if she chose to be so. But I do think the leaking point is fundamental here. And we can talk about the Huawei thing. I don't think it's not national security in the way that some people are portraying it. I think there are fundamental issues around this. But the thing here is, even by the standards of government, this is one of the leakiest governments ever. And as you said, you can get almost a readout of Cabinet within a few minutes of Cabinet ending. When I was a political reporter during the John Major Tony Blair era. If you got a leak from Cabinet, that was a good week's work. You felt really pleased. Now it's quite extraordinary, the scale. And what it shows, and what this leak shows, is a government that has lost all sense of collective responsibility, in which everybody in it is thinking about their own position, their own political advantage, and making it clear to MPs and Conservative supporters that they were on this side of the argument, they were about this. And when that happens, that is the fundamental sign of a government rotting from the top. It's very interesting, too, that the National Security Council is quite a recent invention. And on the day that the Telegraph story broke from this leak, you had Gus O'Donnell, who formerly was in charge of the civil service, saying, it's very important that this body we created to set national security policy is not leaky. This is a level above cabinet decision-making, and this is to do with protecting the nation. And he described it as outrageous that been a leak from that body. David, what was the general response from within the MOD and from the defence community at Mr Williams' departure? Because he's become quite an infamous figure over the past two years or so since he's been Defence Secretary. Because on the one hand, he's fought very tough for money and resources for the department that has won applause, but then it's been gaff after gaff after gaff. And before we talk about his Instagram story telling Russia to shut up and go away, talking about the formidable might of the British Navy, that he's just been not the normal sort of figure you see as a defence secretary and how do you see his legacy and how will he be remembered within the MOD? Well, I knew it was getting pretty bad for Gavin Williamson when I went to the Munich Security Conference back in February and Sergei Lavrov, the uh, Russian foreign minister, actually took the mickey out of Gavin Williamson and got a big laugh from the hall. You know, even Russia taking the rise out of Gavin Williamson was quite a moment. I mean, he became caricatured as Private Pike, seen as almost like this sort of comic figure. There's a great story in The Sun about him wanting to put guns on tractors to try and boost our military forces, which are facing billions of pounds of shortfall in the equipment budget. But when all is said and done, actually, the military chiefs I've been speaking to think Gavin Williamson did rather a good job for defence in the 18 months he was there and fought their corner. If you actually go back to the root of this row between Mark Sedwell, who of course pushed very hard for this leak inquiry, and Gavin Williamson, it really goes back to a slightly contrasting view on the way that national security and defence should be viewed and looked at in the future. Sedwill, remember, was at the Home Office under Theresa May, very much a creature of the intelligence infrastructure. He thought that more resources should be paid towards cyber threats, towards terrorism. Whereas Williamson, when he took over, realised that he inherited military services that were really facing the squeeze and needed investment in them. So he went out and he fought Philip Hammond for more money, and he actually succeeded. He got an extra £1.8 and I think the military chiefs really valued that. Do you think it'd be fair to say that in terms of the Westminster politicking part of his role, he was quite successful in terms of the MOD's position and in terms of the profile of things for the armed services, but it was the rest of the job that he struggled with? 
being the leader in a sense. I think so. And in a sense, you know, they sort of admired the fact that he was willing to go into fight for them, but quietly were saying, oh, you know, I'm not really sure that he's phrased that in the right way. And from a public persona point of view, he didn't necessarily have that authority that Michael Fallon had before, and which one suspects Penny Morden, his successor, will have. She's steeped in the military. Her father was a paratrooper. She was a minister of state in the Defence Department. She comes with real military pedigree, and I think that they will really, really warm to her. I think the other point is that it's about how substantial you are as a political figure when you get to cabinet. And you take a job like defence is a substantial appointment, one that really matters. What was unusual about Gavin Williamson is he got it from no previous other ministerial portfolio. He'd been chief whip and before that he'd worked for David Cameron. And I think that he was therefore desperate to build his own public profile, his own public persona. Almost the only thing anybody knew about him was he had a giant pet tarantula that he kept on his desk, which is not the key attribute you look for in a political leader. And he was therefore too fixated in my opinion on all the profile building on all the publicity on making nice with the press and actually if he'd just been able to quietly do the substantial stuff that David's referred to he would actually have been a bigger figure in the politics of Westminster the people said look at Gavin Williamson he's just getting on with it fighting hard for defence it was because he was obsessed with his image that he got into so much trouble and we shouldn't forget Miranda that this was quite a close confidant of Mrs May that he was David Cameron's PPS so he was seen as an arch Cameronite the guy who was trying to keep those Eurosceptics in the Parliamentary Conservative Party at bay, and then suddenly he jumped ship to run Mrs May's leadership campaign in 2016 successfully. As Chief Whip, he never lost a vote. He was very keen on that record. Then it was Defence Secretary where there was just that constant sense, as Robert was saying, he'd overreached, he'd been promoted one step too far, and it should have been a few more rungs before he'd reached Cabinet. Maybe if he had done that, we would not be in this situation. Well, that's right. It was that feeling of him overreaching himself, which I think was fatal in the end and you know he was reported to have said about mrs may i've made her and i can break her if that's not an example of hubris inviting immediate punishment i don't know what is and also i think as robert says that sense of him being promoted to defense secretary which is a very substantive role and being overly obviously thrilled at the chances this gave him to make real on his ambitions even to the top job It just made him very exposed, and I think that's what made him a slightly ridiculous figure, as well as his inability to stand behind the microphone and speak for Britain, for example, after the Salisbury murders, when he came out with this ridiculous Russia should shut up and go away phrase. He just didn't really have what they used to call political bottom, which you need in those jobs. And David, he is vehemently denying all this and he's been trying to outdo himself in TV interviews with stronger metaphors saying that I didn't do this, I'd bet on my children's life to my dying day, I believe that I didn't do this. What is the general sense about is this going to go anywhere? Because both Labour and the Liberal Democrats are calling for a criminal inquiry. But there is this question of did he actually break this Official Secrets Act? Because as we were saying earlier, it's a political thing, not a legal one. So he will continue to go on about this. But generally, there's a sense that Downing Street has done this and just wants to move on, even if he doesn't want to forget it. I think you have to look carefully at the wording in the letter from Theresa May which talks about him not cooperating with the inquiry. So she doesn't actually say that she has definite evidence, compelling proof that he was responsible for the leak. There is, of course, this circumstantial evidence of the phone call with the Telegraph journalist. But as Robert was saying earlier, in the absence of any clear hard proof, it's difficult to know how this becomes a criminal inquiry. Cressida Dick, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, has said that unless there is a complaint from Number 10 
or the Cabinet Office, then they cannot progress it as a criminal inquiry. So it's difficult for all Gavin Williamson's protestations. It ultimately comes down to that point we were talking about earlier. If Theresa May doesn't want him in the Cabinet, doesn't want him as Defence Secretary, then that is her choice. I think there are two important consequences when we look forward out of this that we have to consider. One is the extent to which this does force the Huawei decision back onto the top of the political agenda. And there is a real issue here. And the Americans in particular fighting very hard and saying, you really do not want Chinese infrastructure in your mobile communications network. And the intelligence sharing that goes on could be jeopardised as a result of this. So I think it's going to move it back up the agenda. The other thing is what he does now politically, because he strikes me as a very bad enemy to have. He's going to be an extremely angry, extremely bitter man. I mean, I have to say, I thought that I swear on the lives of my children like he's Vito Corleone or something was a bit (laughs) absurd, but it shows the level of anger he's got. And we know this man can organise a leadership election. We know this man can marshal votes and count votes correctly. So I would not be at all surprised to see him selling himself to one of the hard Brexit candidates for the leadership and saying, let me deliver for you and that's my ticket back. I thought it was very striking that a lot of MPs who were defending Mr Williamson in the House of Commons were members of the ERG. It was people like Steve Baker and Suella Braverman who are hard Brexiters who have been raising various theories about why this may or may not have happened. And we also know that he was one of the most ardent no-dealers around the Cabinet table and arguing that if it's going to be no Brexit or no deal, then it should be no deal. So when Brexit eventually comes back, be it next week or the week after, I'm sure that's probably one we will hear from Mr Williamson again. But Miranda, we have two new Cabinet Secretaries because of this. And as David said earlier, Penny Mordaunt is the new Defence Secretary. And in a way, it was such an obvious appointment that most people thought she should have got the job last time anyway. It was highly tipped by people in the Cabinet and by Number 10 because she has served in the armed forces before. She's been a Defence Minister and is very popular with Conservative MPs. And she is also the first female defence secretary. She is, and she also represents a constituency with strong forces links, we should say. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. She's also somebody who I would say in the longer run is a kind of outsider who fancies herself for the top job as well. So if you were thinking of putting a pound on a real outsider, that wouldn't be a bad idea. And I think also, though, she is a very controversial figure because, again, she's a hardline Brexiter and she was very front and centre of some of the most controversial claims during the Turkey campaign. was the big one. That's right. So she infamously did an interview where she said that there was nothing that the UK could do to stop Turkey joining the EU and all the consequences to do with free movement that would flow from that. David Cameron himself, the then Prime Minister, had to point out that this wasn't actually true. So she has a poor track record on that. I think it will be interesting. You know, it's nice to have more women in the Cabinet, but you also want them to be the right women. And Robert, the other person we have now has joined the Cabinet is Rory Stewart, who was Justice Minister. And I was asked to write a quick profile of Rory Stewart last night, and it writes itself in a way. His hinterland is just quite incredible, from being a governor of a southern province of Iraq to lecturing at Harvard University to walking across Afghanistan and India to delivering his wife's firstborn child to tutoring the future king, Prince William. A really extraordinary political figure who has also made his name most recently as the most ardent advocate of Theresa May's Brexit deal. The morning she came back from Brussels, Mr Stewart hit every TV and radio station to get that deal out there. And as someone who actually understands international aid and the third world and Brexit, it was another obvious appointment. Yeah, I think he's a really, really interesting appointment. He wrote a wonderful book called The Prince of the Marshes, which I strongly recommend. 
as prisons minister, he was saying if he hadn't improved prisons within a year, he'd have to go. So he at least has avoided that threat. The one thing about Rory Stewart that I think, and I'm a huge fan, is that he's the kind of cabinet minister who would frighten prime ministers and would frighten civil servants because he's just capable of deciding something completely outrageous and trying to force it through. He's a really, really independent thinker. And that's mostly a good thing. He must have thought he might have had a shot at defence secretary himself. But there would always be that concern in Theresa May's head that he might try to sell the army or, you know, or franchise the Navy because he's a completely different thinker with very strong views. I think he'll be a really interesting international aid secretary. He'll be someone who actually believes in international aid, which hasn't been true of every conservative secretary of state in this role, including, I suspect, Penny Morden to some degree. So I think he will be interesting in that role. He'll be one to watch. He's certainly going to be an exciting minister to follow. I agree with that. And I think, as Miranda was saying about Penny being someone who will probably almost definitely run for the leadership, I would think, given her new position, if she's got time to use her new platform, that Rory Stewart himself has said, I think I'd be a great prime minister. He said that in an interview, and he's very prominent within the One Nation group of Conservative MPs, and they've been looking at the sort of person they might want to run, be it Amber Rudd or David Gork, but if Rory Stewart is the different secretary, that is the perfect position for a One Nation Tory to run to just try and push their politics further up the agenda. There's nothing to stop him running. I can't see him being a very serious candidate in the way that I could see Penny Morden, exactly as Miranda says, being an outside bet. A lot of people like her. She's quite jolly as well. I think that, you know, the Conservative Party could use a bit of cheering up. I think both of them would be lucky to make the final cut this time. But you're right, both of them could have a go. Almost everyone seems to be in the running, so why not? Maybe Mr Williamson might still be one of those. Or his spider. Hello, this is James Blitz taking you into the second half of this FT Politics podcast where we will look at the results of the local elections in England and Northern Ireland. England went to the polls on Thursday and it was a bad night for both of the main parties. While the Tories lost hundreds of seats as expected for a party nine years into power, the gains made by Labour were somewhat below expectations. Both parties lost control of some major councils but it was undoubtedly a good night for the Liberal Democrats who demonstrated their might as a successful local campaigning force. They picked up scores of seats and took controls of several Tory councils. Independents also did notably well. So how much of this was all about Brexit or was it all about local issues? Here to discuss the issues with me are George Parker, the FT's political editor, and Laura Hughes, our colleague, the FT's political correspondent. George, come to you first. Do you want to give us a brief overview of where things stand? What have we seen in these results? Well, I think we should say, first of all, that we're speaking before we have all of the results in so we haven't, don't have the final figures, but the pattern is clear to everyone to see, which is that it's been, as you say, a bad night for the Conservative Party, but pretty much as bad as everyone was expecting. Hundreds of seats lost, but from a very high watermark. These seats were last contested in 2015, around the same time as David Cameron won that election victory. But I think the really significant thing, apart from the resurgence of the Liberal Democrats, which we might talk about later, is the fact that the Labour Party did really badly. Now, their losses weren't on the scale of the Conservative losses, but if you think to the day before the local elections, John McDonald, the Shadow Chancellor, was predicting Labour gains of around 400 seats. That plainly hasn't materialised. And that is worrying for the Labour Party. It's obviously worrying for the Conservative Party. People are reading into these results what you would expect them to read into them, depending on their perspective. Brexit has obviously been a very big factor and local issues as well. I mean, the Conservatives haven't done as badly as some people might have expected, given their disarray at Westminster, partly because they do still rest on a record of being quite efficient at a local level. 
of keeping council tax down, fixing potholes and collecting the bins. That's kind of offset what otherwise would have been a much worse set of results. Laura, your assessment, please. I mean, George has put the emphasis there on how badly Labour has done, also the Conservatives. We also want to bring out that the Lib Dems, who've had a pretty bad few years in British politics, have actually done very well here. Yeah, they have. I thought John Curtis, the polling expert, summed up really well when he said they should be cracking open a cheap champagne, maybe even a Prosecco, because... Yes, they've done well, but if you compare it to how they used to do pre-2010, it's not on the same level here. But it is worth noting they've done well, and that shows you that there might be a lot of Tory and Labour voters who are very concerned that Brexit is happening at all. On the other side of things, whilst you've got the Brexit voters who are very angry at the main parties, there are still those that don't want Brexit to happen. And in these elections, the Lib Dems were the main party that really did have that very clear message, we want to stop Brexit. So that's where people did put their votes. And that's why Vince Cable, Lib Dem leader, is feeling very happy today. And so he should do. Let's, with both of you, try and just draw back a bit. I mean, these local elections are the first of two phases we have in the UK in this period. We've had these elections, then we're going to have European elections on May the 23rd, which will then be another, perhaps even bigger test of where things stand. George, to start off with, the way in which Labour and the Conservatives have done, as you say, suggests that a lot of people think that they've mucked up Brexit, that their bad performance reflects the sense that the main parties just have not delivered on things, have got in the way. And and as a result, what is going to happen? How are they going to respond in this period up to the European elections and beyond, perhaps? Well, it's a very good point, because I think the impact of the, on the Brexit debate of these elections will be very profound. You're right that the European elections will be probably an even worse night for both the Tories and the Labour Party because in the European elections you'll have Nigel Farage's party, the yes. Brexit party, coming into the fray for the he, first he didn't, time. He didn't participate and that's important to say. He to didn't participate in the, in the local elections and neither did a new party, a new pro-EU, pro-Remain party called Change UK. They didn't contest the local elections either so they'll be on the scene in the European elections. So it's going to be a difficult night for the Tories and Labour. And a lot of people are looking at these local election results, including John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, saying, we get the message, we've got to sort out Brexit. Now, there are some talks going on between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party at the moment to try to get a cross-party agreement on how to deliver Brexit. Those talks are extremely controversial. Now, there will be some people in both parties who will see these local elections as a sign that the two parties have got to get together and just resolve this, get Britain out of the EU and resolve this issue. And that seemed to be what John McDonnell was suggesting. Barry Gardner, the Shadow Trade Secretary, said to a senior Tory, we're trying to dig you out of this hole. Now, that is an extremely controversial position in the Labour Party. The idea that the Labour Party will try to sort Brexit out on behalf of Theresa May to end this division in the Labour Party and the country, that's very controversial because something like four-fifths of Labour Party activists don't want Labour to help Theresa May deliver Brexit. They want to stop Brexit via a second referendum. So that's a risky strategy. On the Conservative side... There's a lot of alarm on the Tory right that people are reading into these local election results, the fact that there needs to be a Conservative deal with Labour, more of a Labour-style Brexit to get it done. The Conservative right say, hang on a sec, the reason the public are furious with the Tories isn't because they haven't compromised enough, it's because they haven't delivered Brexit. And so the local elections will feed very heavily into these talks which will resume next Tuesday. Both parties have an interest to a certain extent in delivering Brexit, working together, but both leaders, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn know if they go down that route of collaborating with each other, they'll split their parties in two. So it's a really big moment coming up. Laura, how do you see things? Do you think in this next phase we could see this cross-party collaboration or do you think it's just not in Labour's interest to get involved? It depends on your perspective. So on the Tory point, there are 
a number of Eurosceptic MPs this morning who were feeling quite confident that actually this makes a customs union compromise more unlikely because their reading of what's happened is grassroots Tories are furious. Yes furious with Theresa May we need a new leader and we need a harder form of Brexit that's what they want for Labour though I just still don't see why it's in their interest to reach a deal with the Conservatives particularly for the grassroots members who would see this as Labour helping deliver a Tory Brexit and for Labour in any potential election surely it's in their interests to be able to say look at what a botched job the Conservatives have done why would they want their fingerprints? So your view at the moment is that obviously Labour looks as though it has to respond to what Theresa May was saying to try and help us sort this out but actually deep down you don't think it is in their long-term interest to do this no, deal? I don't think it is. I mean yes you can read it as people just want Brexit done and delivered and sorted but it's really difficult and confusing for voters to see Labour working with the Tories. I don't know how Labour would go out on the doorsteps if there was a snap election and justify and explain what they've done. It is really a tricky position for Labour in particular at the moment. I don't know how exactly they'll respond. There's a very mixed message. The fact that Barry Gardner was saying, we're trying to bail you out, Tories, would have gone down really badly in some areas. These talks are obviously going on, as you say, George, and they're going to restart on Tuesday. One assumes that nothing is going to be sorted before the European elections on May the 23rd. Is that right? Or do you actually see any kind of potential breakthrough before then? No, I think that's right. And government sources were confirming this week that it's too late to get legislation through to abort those European elections which are taking place on May the 23rd. The new deadline that the Tories seem to be working to is June the 30th, which is a couple of days before MEPs elected in those elections turn up in Strasbourg for their first day in the new parliament. So the idea is you have the elections, but there's still time to stop them actually taking their seats. But, you know, there's been a lot of wishful thinking on this all the way down the line. Let's then assume for the moment that nothing is going to happen on these cross-party talks between now and the elections. And then let's assume as well that Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party do extraordinarily well on May the 23rd, which I think we can assume... Do you think we're then going to have potentially a full-scale political crisis? Laura, let me come to you first, in the Conservative Party on the back of that. Do you think these questions about Theresa May's survivability will explode absolutely into the open, or is she just somehow going to trundle on into the autumn? No, I think the pressure on her will be enormous if we do get what we think we're going to get in the European elections. I was out campaigning, well not campaigning, I was on the doorsteps with councillors who were campaigning to see what voters were saying and it was extraordinary. The councillor I was with didn't even mention the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, and that's what voters were saying. They thought that they could vote for Nigel Farage's party. Tory councillors. Yeah, in these local elections and Tory voters that these councillors were speaking to wanted to put a protest vote somewhere and in these local elections over the last 24 hours the interesting thing is that they weren't able to do that they already know that they have a way of sending a message to Theresa May on the 23rd of May which is to vote for Nigel Farage's party and when that happens I think it will be really hard for Theresa May to stay in position because we would have had these elections where they've done very badly and then even worse what I predict elections that we will see at the end of May and yeah then you've got a real split in the Tory party already hearing of Tory MPs Tory MEPs admitting privately that they themselves will vote for the Brexit party on May the 23rd that's an extraordinary situation for Theresa May to find herself in. George interesting to hear what you think on this I mean we should remind readers of course that backbench Conservative MPs can't technically topple Theresa May because they tried to do it last November and a year has to go by before they can do it again but what do you think do you 
actually think it could just become unsustainable at the end of the month? Well, I agree with Laura. There'll be an almighty bust-up between Theresa May and the Conservative Eurosceptic wing who will try to topple her immediately after those European elections because they will be so bad. And they will see, from their point of view, the only way to stop Nigel Farage and his Brexit party is to appoint a hardline Brexiteer or a Brexiteer, probably Boris Johnson, maybe yeah. Dominic Raab, who would then go back to Brussels, show the Europeans what a real negotiation looks like, renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, rip out the backstop. Of course, the likely outcome of that is that people in Brussels will just say, sorry, we've already made it clear we're not doing that. Then the new Tory leader will come back to Westminster, say we need to leave without a deal. Parliament will say we've made it clear we're not going to allow that to happen and you have an election. Now, that scenario is so alarming to quite a few people in the Conservative Party that there will be an attempt to prop Theresa May up after those European elections, rather than let the party fall into the hands of the Brexiteers, Boris Johnson, and possibly the likelihood of a general election before the end of the year. There will be people saying to Theresa May, keep going, soldier on with your deal. We've got to get a deal through and leave in an orderly fashion. And if we leave in an orderly fashion, that increases the chances of a more moderate Conservative leader coming through, someone maybe like Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary. So you're right, the pressure on Theresa May after those European elections will be massive, but it will be coming from both sides. Some people saying she's got to go immediately, another lot of people saying, soldier on. Of course, one other thing which the European elections might show is that while the two main parties are trying to sort out some kind of cross-party deal, actually what voters are really veering towards, and we've seen a sign of it in these local elections, is that they're veering towards parties which have a much, much clearer position. So the Lib Dems actually have a very clear position on, on a referendum, so they've done very well. Farage has a very clear position on hard Brexit or no deal, so he was likely to do very well. That may well be one of the lessons. Of course, the parties we haven't mentioned here as well are Change UK, the new party. They didn't really participate in these local elections. Do you think they could reinforce in the European elections that sense of actually the British public does want to have another referendum, Laura. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, potentially, because I think how people will vote in these European elections would be very different if we were asking the public to vote in a general election. This just feels like a way of sending a message of casting a vote either in favour of hard Brexit or a second referendum. So yes, people that might normally traditionally vote for the major political parties could choose to cast their vote elsewhere because it is such a black and white issue if you do go for Change UK or if you go for the Brexit party. Let's just round off then by asking you the difficult question which I think comes at almost every one of these podcasts which is where do you think we're going to be at the next big appointment say around June when the European Council happens in terms of the British position? I mean George first of all do you seriously think there's a chance of a Labour Conservative cross-party deal or do you think actually we'll be hurtling towards some unknown outcome? Thanks for asking me that, James. Um, <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think all the signs are that everything that Theresa May has tried on Brexit hasn't worked. And speaking to people on both sides of the debate about these cross-party talks, it seems to me the idea of this grand Labour Conservative bargain, big deal to deliver Brexit is not going to happen. I'm told that's on the extreme end of what might be done. They're looking at ways to sort of manage it. So maybe you have people voting certain ways on amendments to the withdrawal agreement bill. But basically nothing that's quite as straightforward as a straight up and down deal because the Labour Party just doesn't want to dip its hands in the blood of Brexit. That doesn't mean that you can't possibly get something through. I think that's possible. But at the moment, looking moderately unlikely and I think it'd be a fairly reckless person who sits here and makes a prediction that a deal will be done before the June European Council because all of our past experience at least is that the can keeps on being kicked down the road so I suspect this agony is going to last just a little bit longer. Laura is that your view as well? The agony goes on. (laughs) 
the agony goes on. I think you always just have to have it in the back of your mind that Theresa May feels it's her public duty to deliver Brexit. This will be her only legacy. For her to go, you're going to need a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances because we've already felt like she was going to go multiple times and she hasn't. But, you know, if she just can't get something through and the numbers still aren't there, are we going to have a Tory leadership election? Are we going to have an extreme Brexiteer? Are we going to have to go through this whole thing again? I don't see why Labour would want their fingerprints on a deal with the Conservatives. So who knows? But I can't see a clear way out. I don't think Theresa May can. I don't think her team can. They're just taking every week as it comes, to be honest, at the moment. And there we have it. Ladies and gentlemen, the show goes on. Laura, George, thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, David, Robert, Laura and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne and James Blitz. It was produced by Anna Dedder and Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.